it. Thank you, Eric. And I really do want to just reemphasize the, the, you know, we call it Christmas joy because it is. It's a joy to be able to care for and help the children of those who are incarcerated. So I really would, um, you know, as much as we talk around here about growing deeper, walking closer, and reaching farther, this is a tangible way to reach farther. And so go ahead and grab a tag off of uh, the tree there in the foyer and, uh, and then purchase that gift, wrap it, and then we'll be gathering them together under that tree. And then if you get the chance to deliver, you don't want to miss out on that because uh, it's really a beautiful thing to be able to see the, the look on a, on a young person's face if they happen to be there when you, when you deliver it. So uh, anyway, I don't know how about you, but uh, you know, this time of year, there's, there's so many things happening in terms of traditions, right? Uh, maybe there's, you know, decorating of a tree, or maybe there's certain foods that your family enjoys together. Uh, there was a, a, a young girl, her name was, her name was Emily, and, and, you know, she was, you know, going through all the different traditions with, with her family of decorating their house. Uh, there was the aroma of freshly baked gingerbread cookies, you know, wafting through the home. They were, they were, uh, kind of putting all the different ornaments on the tree. But there was one ornament in particular that caught her attention. It was a little red ornament with gold writing on it. And, and at first she was thinking, wait, does that have a seam? You know, can it actually be opened up? And it turned out it did. But of course her mom was like, wait, you got to wait till Christmas. You can't, you can't open it until then. And so she's kind of Thinking about it, you know, throughout the month, she's kind of touching the ornament and looking at it. And she's, she's picturing this, this hidden compartment inside. And what, what could be inside of that? You know, maybe it's a miniature of, of Santa's sleigh. Who knows? But on Christmas morning, as she, she runs downstairs to open gifts, the first thing she goes to is that little red Christmas ball on the tree. And she carefully unscrews both halves. And, and, and it reveals a small piece of paper rolled up inside. And so her heart is kind of pounding with anticipation as she's thinking, what could it be? And so she, she unfurls it to read the, the neatly written words. But to her surprise, the message did not reveal some sort of hidden treasure or, or some secret to unlocking some magical surprise. No, instead, it simply read, made in China. Yes, yeah, she was saddened by that. How, she had a great Christmas. Don't worry. My point is this. Those kinds of disappointments. I got to help Emily, right? The, I don't even know who that is exactly. I was just thinking of this story. But the point is, have you encountered the same kind of disappointment? Especially around Christmas time. Have you had that? Can't we all think back to that at different times? Different moments where someone, you know, you think this is going to happen. If that doesn't happen, something else happens. Or you were anticipating this, but it wasn't something that would come true. Um, full disclosure, Emily's not a real person, okay? For those of you who are still bothered by that, I was just thinking of a story to help you understand this. I'm sure someone named Emily is a real person. But, all right. Um, I just see so many sad faces. I'm like, really? I'm just trying to help you out. Um, so, all right. But, but here's the thing. Those kind of disappointments are one thing. But oftentimes, and, and within our church family, we do have uh, times of, of deeper trials than that. We really do. Uh, there, there are folks among us who are calling out to God in this time saying, Lord, please relieve me of this illness. I look forward to the day, Lord, when I won't be facing uh, the financial trials that I have. Lord, why am I in such a, a kind of a mental, just gray time, especially this time of year? Uh, 
for some people, they're going, the person I married isn't the person I'm married to anymore. They've changed. And it's hard. For some people, they're, they're, they're trying to get over a recent breakup with someone. For others, they have absolutely no balance or margin in their life. They're just going from one frantic event to the next frantic event to the next. And the worst thing about that is they're going, and it's my own fault. You know, the book of 1 Peter was written because Peter wanted those who read his book to be ready for what he calls the fiery trial. And so this Christmas season, we're looking at joy to the world. How to have sure joy in uncertain times. And as a part of that, we're going to be looking at a different dimension of joy each week. And for this week, we're looking at joy through suffering. Joy through suffering, because that is a unique thing that we find in the scriptures, in the gospel, because of who Jesus is. And so Peter opens his letter, and he uses that very term. He, he talks about, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. That's how the book of 1 Peter starts. And then from there, he continues to take that theme and unfold it and show it to us in many different ways. And I'd like you to, to open to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. You'll find it on page 182. On the, in, in the Bibles, on the chair rack in front of you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And in honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is the time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to see the way you are at work in and through fiery ordeals and help us to live in such a way that you're glorified because we actually see you. We see you, our faithful creator. We see you, the one who we can entrust our souls to through those times. And we pray, Lord, that we would be able to, to live out the joy that you've called us to, especially in seasons of trial. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Go ahead and take your seats. Whenever I speak on this particular topic from the scriptures, I'm always concerned because I know that there are some people who are gathered here with us today or online who are really going through some difficulties. And, and so for them, I'm grateful that we're in this passage and we're talking about this right now because there's very much a sense of, yes, I need to hear what God is going to say. But my concern is for the other people who are here too because it might be that you're not facing very many trials right now. You might be thinking, hey, life's pretty good right now. And that might give you this, this kind of tendency maybe in the back of your mind to sort of check out a little bit. But here's the thing. We live in a fallen world, do we not? Have you noticed that? It's a broken world. And so I really want you to dig in, pay attention and focus because if you're not suffering through a trial right now, don't worry. You will be. You will be. You, we need to be ready for this. And uh, the way we respond to suffering and trials is one of the marks of what it means to be someone who follows Jesus. So brothers and sisters, let's, let's look at what this passage has to say. And the first thing that we, we would find here would be Peter is telling us how not to respond to suffering. And the first thing we see is this. Don't be surprised. Isn't that interesting? Don't be surprised. Why? Well, Peter wants his, his, his readers to understand that there's this thing called the, the fiery trial. And again, he opened the very letter with that same term. And he's saying, you know, there, there are various, there are various kinds. And they trouble us for, for different seasons and for different reasons. And, and here he's, he's saying, you need to understand that your life is not going to be this thing where everything you have in your mind or every desire you have or every aspiration that you chase just comes true and happens because you're a follower of Jesus. I mean, sadly, the overwhelming majority of gospel teaching and truth that comes out of our country into the rest of the world states the exact opposite of that. There's an entire movement of people. They have the most time on the airwaves. They've got the most uh, listened to and watched ministries. And essentially their message is this. If you believe enough, then everything you want will be yours. Are you suffering right now? It's because of a lack of faith in you. Did the outcome of this event not go your way? It's because you used the wrong words. Because when you speak, there's power in your words because you're a child of God and God spoke the world into existence. So as his child, God, you know, like things beget like things. When God begets, you know, a, a dog has a baby dog. Birds have baby birds. When God has a child, a son or daughter, you're a baby God. God spoke the universe into being. When you speak, now your words have power too. So if you're suffering right now, something is wrong. Brothers and sisters, that's a demonic lie. And if you're going to hold on to something like that, you've got to take out massive portions of the Bible. One of the portions you've got to take out is 1 Peter. Because the whole theme of the book is suffering and what it means to suffer 
in Jesus, under his rule, anticipating his return and realizing that in the midst of your suffering, he has a purpose for you. And so the goal of the Christian life isn't to avoid suffering. No, instead the goal of the Christian life is to walk with Jesus, to love him, to know him, to serve him, whatever that brings. And in saying that, it doesn't mean the suffering is less difficult, horrendous, pressing. The various trials that Peter describes in this book include everything. There's going to be seasons of life when, when and he's telling his early readers this, that you're going to lack provision, you're going to lack power, you're going to lack a sense of, of significance or you're going to lack a sense of safety. There's going to be times he's, he's telling them, you're going to receive uh, attacks from people. They might be physical attacks. They might be verbal attacks. They could just be uh, attacks that come to hinder your life or your well-being in some way. There's going to be pain in your life that comes from, from having people that you love suffer near you or around you. There's going to be pain that comes as, as your bodies wear out over time. We're told, you know, our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. That's the thing for the believer, right? Our outer natures are wasting away. But inside, there's something else going on. There, the Spirit of God dwells within you. You've been made new. If you've come to Jesus, if you've trusted him, he tells you that from within you will flow springs of living water because of his Spirit dwelling inside of you. There's new life you've been given, but the fact is our outer nature is wasting away. It means he's telling them you're going to face times when you are attacked by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so these difficulties, they might come in seasons. It might be a, a longer stretch. It could be an occasion. The word various that he used earlier includes all those different facets. But, but he wants his readers to know this. Trials of every shape, size, color, type, they're going to be right there as a part of your life. And I think especially in our country, in, in 21st century East Bay, America, all those thoughts are foreign to us. Thankfully, for the majority of those who call themselves Christ followers around the world, that's not the case. Our brothers and sisters in, 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 in the Middle East, they get it. Our brothers and sisters in Africa, they get it. Our brothers and sisters in Asia, they get it. And I think people in ages past understood this well. George Whitfield was, was uh, probably one of the first celebrities in the colonies. He, he was a fantastic preacher. He could preach open air to several thousand people without any form of help or ampl well, they didn't have amplification. It was the 1700s when he was preaching, but you know what I'm saying? Sometimes they would use, you know, acoustics or the building or other things to amplify speaking. He didn't need it. 
And uh, he understood during that season also what, what trials were. And, and so when he was about to graduate from Oxford as, as a minister, about to embark upon his ministry, here's what he said, quote, I'm now about to take orders in my degree and go into the world. What will become of me, I know not. All I can say is I look for perpetual conflicts and struggles in that life and hope for no other peace, only a cross while on this side of eternity. Wow. Is that how we look upon embarking upon our next season? <laughs> no, he understood that. And that's really a good lesson for us. We should expect difficulty. We should not be surprised. Fiery trials are going to come among us. By the way, notice that phrase, among us. He says that, that the fiery deal among you. He's talking to a community. He's saying that in the midst of this community, there will be fiery trials among you. Meaning it doesn't hit all of us at the same time in the same way. Also implicit in that little phrase is a mutual concern and care for one another. Again, we cannot do this Christian life thing alone. Know this, brothers and sisters of Clayton Valley Church, there are fiery trials among us. Are we aware of that? Are we caring for one another? Are we praying for one another? Are we involved? This is a, this is a community issue, not an individual one. And it's not strange that there would be such a thing. You know, it is kind of strange. It's actually, it's actually more strange from the Apostle Peter's vantage point. It's more strange for believers to consider suffering to be strange. That's strange. I mean, what are we thinking? We're supposed to have heaven on earth now. Is that it? And if we don't have it, do we demand more? Or instead, are we seeing things from the Lord's vantage point? Who suffered the most? The Lord Jesus. Who was the most joyful? We're told that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You see what's happening? There's two things happening at once. There's suffering and joy in the same moment at the same time. But that's not how we tend to look at it, is it? We tend to see things as, well, when everything's going great, then I have joy, and when things are hard, I don't. But that's not what we learn from Jesus. Now, joy and suffering are in the same heart, in the same moment, at the same time. There's a tension there. And you notice joy is not simply sort of flat, kind of plastic, forced upon yourself type smiling happiness, quote unquote. That's not what we're talking about. Wow, that was very emphatic. Okay, I didn't mean that. Obviously, that's the main point. Write that down. I don't know. You know? But that is, is, is so important to see because I think what we do is we tend to see joy as 
what our culture would see is just sort of like, again, that glib, flat, kind of superficial happiness thing. I also don't want to downplay the word happiness. I think happiness is a good word. As a matter of fact, when Jesus in Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are, you really could translate that happy are. So let's not say happiness is a bad thing. No, it's a beautiful thing. It's a gift from God. But let's make sure it's the deep, full orb thing that the Bible describes it as and realize that joy and sorrow can go hand in hand in the same moment at the same time. Because joy is not dependent upon circumstances. Joy is instead dependent upon the person and work of the living God. There's another thing, though, in terms of what Peter says in terms of not, how not to respond to suffering. It's not just don't be surprised. He also says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Uh, we see that in, in verses uh, 15 and 16. Notice what he says in verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. What's the name? The name of Jesus. The name. Why is this important to Peter? Do you remember what happened in his life? Jesus has been betrayed and he's at trial. And Peter's already said to Jesus, you know what? You're saying we're going to fall away from you. All of these others might fall away from you, but Jesus, I will die with you. That's what he stated in his kind of well-intentioned and kind of proud heart in that moment. And he declares that to Jesus and Jesus tells him, actually, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. And what happened? Peter denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times before dawn. What happened there? He was afraid of, of suffering shame at being a follower of Jesus. What did he say? Not only am I not with him, I, I never knew him. I've never seen, I don't know anything about him. So Peter was ashamed of being a disciple of Christ, but let's face it, he's not ashamed anymore. And that's why he's bringing this out here. Don't be ashamed. Suffer especially for following Jesus. This is now a more specific type of suffering. It's not simply general suffering. It's suffering because you're a follower of Christ. It's not being afraid to stand out, to look different. So when you're at work, do people know you're a believer? Or is that like, well, no, 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 I wouldn't want to do that. I mean, that, that's, that's not that part of my life. That part of my life is work. So I have work here, and then I have Jesus here. Like, he's in this compartment over here, but I don't want to, like, do this. I mean, if people at work knew I was a believer, are you kidding? What would they say? There goes that promotion. There goes that friendship. 
There goes that commission. Now, suffering as a believer is something that we're told here is, 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 a, is a beautiful thing. Now, now, there are things that you don't want to suffer for. I love how Peter is very candid about that. He goes in verse 15, you'll notice what he said. Make sure that none of you suffers as, and he brings up various forms of law breaking. You know, don't, don't suffer as a murderer. Okay, yeah, check. Good idea, right? That's, you don't want to be, you don't want to take Jesus' name and drag it through the mud by disobeying God's law. You don't want to commit murder. You're de degrading the image of God and another human being. So not as a murderer, uh, not as a thief. Again, that's just someone who steals. So you don't want to be someone who's suffering because of sin in those areas. Or an evildoer. That's kind of an overall summarizing term that describes someone who engages in, in uh, various evil activities. And so, uh, you know... Peter referenced that earlier in chapter 2. He described that a little more. I do find the, the next term, though, very interesting. He, you know, don't suffer as a murderer. Don't suffer as a thief. Don't suffer as an evildoer. Or, notice the end of the line, or a troublesome meddler. What's that? What is that? And it's fascinating. It's possible that Peter coined this term because it comes from two terms. He just slapped them together. One term is overseer. So it means to look over something, supervise something. The other term means belonging to another. So you get the picture. You are trying to oversee something that belongs to somebody else. So this is sort of like the nosy, gossip, busybody, you know, hmm, I wonder what the neighbors are doing. Let's find out. We can talk about it with the neighbors. It's that kind of thing. Essentially, it means be, by being someone who doesn't mind their own business. <laughs> and I do kind of love how Peter makes that a very practical thing. Why? Because you're going to suffer if you do that. It, frankly, you're going to have very few relationships or friendships. Because you're always looking for the next person to meddle in their life. And they don't want that. And so he's got legal crimes. And he said, don't suffer for that. And then he's got kind of this social nuisance idea. Don't suffer for that. By the way, that, that can often come across in different ways. I think sometimes the, the troublesome meddler, really it comes under the guise of trying to help someone out, right? Um, parents of older kids, word to the wise that I am still learning. It is very easy to be a troublesome meddler with your older children. You know, they call, hypothetically, let's say hypothetically, they call, they don't live with you anymore, and there's a problem. And before the conversation's over, you've got five solutions you've laid out for them already. And thankfully, this particular kid goes, hey, Dad, I was, I was just asking for some prayer and some help. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm a troublesome meddler. Okay, sorry, sorry. But that's what he's doing. He, he's, he's warning against significant legal things that you should not do. You cannot do. Uh, you're destroying other people's lives all the way down to things that are just annoyances. But they're all important. Um, don't suffer because of that. See, this also rescues people from kind of having that kind of what we would call a martyrdom complex, right? Oh, yeah, everyone's against me. 
because I'm a follower of Jesus. And it's like, no, everyone's against you because you're a mean person. (laughs) Sorry, you just are. That's not the same thing. You know, that phrase gets thrown out, the godly are going to suffer. It's like, well, that'd be great if you were being godly right now, but you're not, okay? So that's the the qualification that, that Peter is making for us. But there's a big difference, verse 16, in suffering as a Christian. Uh, The term Christian initially was not used in a complimentary way at all. It was actually used by the pagan nations and the Roman Empire against first century believers. It was a term of disdain. Oh, those Christians. They hated them for all kinds of reasons. They wouldn't bow down to a multiplicity of gods. The emperor didn't like because they wouldn't bow down to the emperor. They had this annoying habit of saying that, can you believe this? There's only one God. Jesus Christ. He's to be worshipped. I mean, that's ridiculous. He's the king. I'm the king, right? So the emperor hated him. The the secular government hated them. Secular leaders hated them. And then, of course, also the religious leaders at that time hated them as well. So, oh, you're a Christian. A Christ follower. And it was a term of, of, of derision. And yet, eventually... Christian stood up and said, you know what? That's right. I am a Christian. I am a Christ follower. Do what you must. I refuse to bow to any other. So, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, they are not to be ashamed. And what does that mean? That means following Jesus into suffering. And yet, we find that, again, God is not absent. Suffering in the life of a believer is not a a reflection of God's absence. It does not demonstrate that God doesn't care. If anything, no. Suffering in the life of someone who follows Jesus is a demonstration of God's grace because he has a purpose for you in it. And Peter goes on to describe what some of these purposes are. Look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What's he saying there? He's saying God is using judgment to purify his people. That's what fire does. We find that picture throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so God is taking his people and using suffering in order to cause them to grow and to be purified. And so God's appointed those sufferings for Christians. But here's the other thing he's saying. Notice the word that he uses in verse 17. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. What's he saying? He's saying the sufferings of Christians in this time is actually the beginning of the final judgment for the world. So it begins with the refining fire for believers. And it's completed when God brings his full orb judgment on the world at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a part of what he's saying here is, hey, if you're suffering now, realize this. These are the beginnings of God's judgment. And those who are accusing you or who are placing on you various forms of of persecution, 
those who are opposing you because of Jesus, realize this, your sufferings now are actually the beginnings of God's judgment of the evil world and all who reject him. And there's comfort to be found in that. Because the judgment begins with God's house and then goes on to God's world. How would that encourage them? Well, because as, as they face persecution and as, as they lose their businesses and as they suffer uh, physically, what's happening is God is taking up their cause and he is going to vindicate them on the day of his return. And in the meantime, the believers, brothers and sisters in Jesus counted a joy to suffer for the name of Christ. Do you remember that with, uh, with the apostles? We find that in the book of Acts where they were told, do not preach in this name, there's that term again, Jesus, any longer. And the religious leaders were adamant, do not preach in this name anymore. Miracles were happening. People were being healed. All these things were going on. And yet the religious leaders were going, yeah, we know. We don't care. Stop preaching in his name because you're affecting our bottom line. This is our place. This is our turf. This is our power. And you're messing with it. And what was their response? Do you remember? They said, in Acts 5, they said, we must obey God rather than man. So they even said to them, hey, you, you tell us, should we obey man or God? I mean, they should have known better. And then what happened? The text tells us they were beaten severely and released. But here's what's striking. The very next phrase said, and they counted it a joy because they were suffering for the name of Jesus. And that's what brings us to the next thing that Peter addresses. Not only are we told how not to suffer, but we are told how do Christ followers respond to suffering? And the first thing that Christ followers do is they keep on rejoicing, just like that. In the same way, they keep on rejoicing. Look at verse 13. To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, there it is, keep on rejoicing. It's not, again, this shallow, plastic, smiley, fake happiness thing. It's a deeply rooted joy that coexists with sorrow, as we've said. And, and, and it changes us because God is showing us what's actually important and God is framing the suffering that we're in with his purposes and we're learning directly that lesson that God truly does take us places we would never want to go to accomplish in us things we could never do on our own. But when you're in the middle of it, it's really hard to see that. It's really hard to see that. And, and the keep on rejoicing part, it's not just simply walking around whistling a hymn as you kind of go through the trial. That's not the point. No, there's tears, there's agony, there's sorrow. And yet there is this anchored heart that knows that God's got you in the middle of it. Keep on rejoicing. 
Notice, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice with exaltation. What's he saying there? You're rejoicing now and you're going to keep on rejoicing because you're looking forward to the day of his return. You're living now in light of then. Even in the midst of suffering. Keep on rejoicing. You ever wonder why it was that uh, Judas betrayed Jesus? You ever think about that? Like, why? Why did he do it? Why? Why would he? He, he was. He actually saw the miracles firsthand. You know, he 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 he, he saw the feeding of the five thousand. He saw the raging sea calmed with a whisper. He saw Lazarus raised from the dead. And yet, he still, he still. Betrayed Jesus. And, and we don't know all of his inner thoughts. We do know what he did, of course, when he left that fateful night and he walked off and betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We, we know what he did. But somehow in the midst of it all, he had his greed, certainly. He, he loved the, the money that he was watching. He was, he was actually the overseer of the purse, so to speak. And he was pilfering from that for a long time. But part of it very, very much could very well have been that he just could not stomach the idea that the Messiah's glory would also have with it rejection and suffering. It's the same thing that Peter struggled with when Peter said to, to Jesus, hey, you're not going to die. Why? Because you're the Messiah. You're, the, you're the, 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 the Lord. You're the Son of Man. And so this idea of suffering would be something that that he just could not take, really. And, uh, and I think that's what caused him to actually lose sight of his purpose in it. And certainly it caused him to lose joy. He was not a very rejoicing kind of a person. Do you remember when, uh, when, when the woman came and, and, and anointed Jesus' head with, with perfume? And, and actually it was very expensive. It was like three years worth of wages, I think, or more. So we're talking like, you know, just take your yearly, multiply it by four. You're about there, you know, maybe more than that. And she's dumping this on Jesus, and they're all going, what are you doing, right? And Jesus is saying, no, this is a beautiful act that she committed of worship. And by the way, it's going to be spoken of long after these times. And, you know, it was recorded in Scripture. We, I'm talking about it right now. So there you go. It was, you know, a prophecy that came true again. And yet, Judas especially is noted as being one who is sort of like just sulking in the back, like really uh, and probably deep down, it's, man, I could have hawked that for a lot of money. He could not grasp this idea of what Jesus really came to do. And because of that, he certainly lost joy. So how do Christ followers respond to suffering? Lastly, not only do they keep on rejoicing, but... We also are called to entrust our souls to our creator in the middle of it. That's in verse 19. Look what it says. Therefore, because of all this, in light of all this, those who suffer according to the will of God, how do you, how you suffer according to God's will? Entrust their souls to a faithful creator 
in doing what's right. It's interesting, that note of, of the creator, why? Because God made all things. God put everything together. God designed all things. God's in control. God's holding the universe together. You can trust him. He's the one that made you. He's the one that's rescued you from your sin. He's the one that's sovereign over every part of your life. And this season of suffering, he has you going through it for a reason. The one who created you is the one who also recreated you at your new birth in Jesus is also the one who's bringing you safely home. And so deliberately, notice, those who suffer according to God's will are going to entrust their souls to him. It's like you're taking your heart and going, Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I'm not sure what's going on, but I'm taking my soul and I'm placing it, so to speak, in your safe, wise, sovereign hands as the creator. Is that what you'll do through this time? If, if you find yourself in a, in a place of suffering, can you do that? Can you, can you see what God's doing here in and through this, this time of, 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 of deep suffering for you? Someone else who understood suffering really well is a guy named George Matheson. He was born in Glasgow, Scotland in March of 1842. And uh, he is a beautiful writer. Uh, but something about his life that's important is this. At birth, Matheson, uh, his eyesight was poor. It wasn't good. But by the age of 18, he, he nearly lost it completely. So it was a degenerative eyesight disease. And so he was basically robbed of physical sight but at the same time, he, he understood and recognized spiritual truths, and he would talk about these things and describe them with clarity, and, and even in a beautiful, descriptive way. And he talked a lot about the role of suffering in the life of a believer. And, and frankly, it didn't catch him by surprise at all. He, he didn't think that suffering for his faith as a Christian was strange at all. And, uh, and so he, he describes that, and he writes it in this way. And, and this, is, this is a long quote, but I want you to hold on tight to this, because it's well said. Here's what he said. There's a time coming in which your glory shall consist in the very thing which now constitutes your pain. Nothing more could be more sad to Jacob than the ground on which he was lying, a stone for his pillow. It was the hour of his poverty. It was the season of his night. It was the seeming absence of his God. The Lord was in the place and he knew it not. Awakened from his sleep, he found that the day of his trial was the dawn of his triumph. Ask the great ones of the past, what has been the spot of their prosperity? And they will say, it was the cold ground on which I was lying. Ask Abraham, he will point to the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Ask Joseph, he will direct you to his dungeon. Ask Moses, he will date his fortune from his danger in the Nile. Ask Ruth, she will bid you to build her monument in the field of her toil. Ask David, he will tell you that his songs came in the night. Ask Job, he will remind you that God answered him out of the whirlwind. Ask Peter, he will extol his submersion in the sea. Ask John, he will give you the path to Patmos. Ask Paul, he will attribute his inspiration to the light which struck him blind. Ask one more, the Son of God. Ask him whence has come his rule over the world. He will answer from the cold ground on which I was lying, the Gethsemane ground. I received my scepter there. 
Thou too, O my soul, will be garlanded by Gethsemane. The cup thou fain would pass from you will be your cornet in the world by and by. Isn't that amazing? You ask any one of these saints, followers of the Lord, and their response would very likely be the same. They readily saw that glory is not gained any other way. So again, that's why Peter writes to us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask that you would help us to see, help us to grow, help us to learn these truths, especially this Christmas season. We thank you and praise you for, for the joy that is offered to the world. And yet we recognize that your word tells us that there is a, the joy that's offered is a joy that comes through suffering, especially and mostly the suffering of the Son of God himself. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And Lord, we would pray if there are those here today that have never turned to you yet, that this would be that time that they would run to you for mercy, that they would admit that they have broken your law as all of us have, that they would turn to you for forgiveness as all of us need your forgiveness. We are all sinners before you. And that they would receive the grace of Jesus and the gift of righteousness that he has purchased with his blood. So we look to you to accomplish those things among us today and we thank you for the sacrifice that gives us hope, for the suffering that he endured, that he endured the cross and suffered that shame, anticipating the glory to come. We praise you for him, and we give thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. We now come to a time of celebrating the Lord's table. And, uh, and as we do so, um, Let's, let's go before the Lord. You'll find in your bulletin a, a sheet of paper, by the way, with several different prayers that you can reflect on and look at. But let's take time especially to just confess our sins to God. It's a time to reflect. It's a time to um, look upon the cross again to remember what Jesus did. It's also a time of confession. And so perhaps we even go before the Lord and just think of what God maybe has brought to mind as we spend time together in the word today. Are there things that the spirit prompted that you would want to bring to him in confession? So we'll, we'll, we'll do that silently together. And then uh, when the music begins, um, you can come forward to, uh, to pick up both elements and go back to your seat and then we'll partake of them together. Let's go before the Lord in silence.